about your word today. We pray as we look at who can be an apostle and a prophet and who cannot. You'd give us clarity and understanding so that we may contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll be finishing today our refutation of the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. And today, probably the most important issue is can there be, I should say is the question, can there be modern-day apostles and prophets? What I've tried to show in the previous weeks is the wayward theology of these supposedly new apostles. And once we unpacked all of their, and I, we couldn't even delve into all of their heresy, what we'll now show is that it is a fool's errand to even pretend to be an apostle, that there are no modern apostles after the first century. So I want to begin by laying out, and by the way, we don't have a PowerPoint because our bulb is bad in the projector. So we've got one on order. But if you have your handout, it's the same handout that we used last time. We'll be focusing on the last two slides, and we'll have a lot of verses to look at. What I want to do is lay out for you who could be an apostle, what an apostle was, and I'm going to show you that no person today, really after the first century A.D., could ever claim to be a modern apostle. So I want to begin with what an apostle is. The term apostle comes from apostolos, which means a sent one. And the concept in the Old Testament that bleeds into the New Testament is that the apostle was one who was sent, who had the very authority of the one who sent him. So that if you reject the apostle, you're rejecting the one who sent him, namely God, or Jesus Christ, who is God. So I want to show you where that concept began in the Old Testament with a term called the shaluak. The shaluak was a, it's actually a participle in Hebrew for the one who was sent, who has the authority of the one who sends them. And a great story that I think illustrates this is the story of how David sent messengers to remember the fool Nabal. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to the Old Testament. We'll start in 1 Samuel 25, verses 2 through 6. And this isn't the only passage, but it's one that I think illustrates the idea of authority given to the messenger, in this case the shaluak, so that if the shaluak, the one who was sent, is rejected, you're rejecting the one who sends them. Now, in this case, of course, it's King David that will be rejected. So if you recall, this is the story of Nabal, the wife Abigail, and David. This is around Mount Carmel. It says in 1 Samuel 25, verse 2, it says, Now there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing a sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Now notice in verse 4 it says that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. So notice the greeting is in David's name. And what that means is when you give a greeting, he is to the person who is representing David to receive honor as he gives honor. And so that meant there would be a greeting in return. Now, the idea is if he's greeting Nabal in David's name, this messenger, if the messengers are rejected, it's identical to rejecting David himself. Now, who is David at this time? Well, he's not quite yet king, but he has been on the run from, remember, Saul. And David, however, is God's anointed, and he will be one day the king. So, yes, Brian, do you have something? Oh, okay, I'm sorry, you just had an inquisitive look. <laughs> he always has that, yes. Very good. So no, notice it, yeah. <laughs> For, okay, good, good. <laughs> First Samuel 2, 6, notice it continues, it says, And thus you shall say, Have long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now, does everyone recall that David wants some sustenance from a kinsman. Nabal is a kinsman. And ironically, David is the 
future king of Israel. He's God's anointed, and he was protecting Nabal and his shearing operation. And all he wants is a little sustenance, which in the culture of the day he was entitled to since he had been protecting his kinsmen. But also because his kinsman was this Nabal, he was entitled to this. But Nabal, the fool, rejects the messenger sent by David very harshly. Therefore, who is he ultimately rejecting? David himself. And if you remember, David is going to wipe Nabal out. Who intercedes on behalf of Nabal? Abigail. Abigail. That's right. You remember the story. So I want you to see that as an example of the one who was sent. The messengers of David had the authority of David himself. That's the way it is with the apostle in the New Testament. The apostle is sent, literally a sent one, with the authority of Christ himself. In fact, if you look on the slide, if you have your handout, you'll notice Matthew 10.40. This is one of the most important verses regarding apostles that you want to keep in your back pocket, so to speak. Maybe memorize this one. It's funny, oftentimes I look at memory verses, and any verse in the Bible is worth memorizing, of course. But this, I've never seen this one, and this would be an important one. Because notice in Matthew 10.40, Jesus says, He who receives you, stop there. Who's the you? Well, it's the apostles, his disciples. Whoever receives his apostles, he says, receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. You know, the book of Hebrews declares that Jesus is the original apostolos, the sent one. Now, it doesn't say original, but he is an apostle and high priest of our confession. But I like to think of Jesus as the original sent one because he's sent from the Father, but he's God himself. He's sent from the Father, the Son comes, but then he has dispatched himself messengers that will speak on his behalf. And what he is clearly revealing here in Matthew 10.40 is that if you reject the message of the apostle of Christ, you're rejecting Christ himself. And if you'll receive the message and the apostles of Jesus Christ, therefore you're receiving Christ himself. That's the importance of that passage. Yes, Brian. Keep it busy. Uh, uh, Paul, on the road to Damascus, confronted, why are you persecuting me? Yes. So, you see there that the persecution was not against other people, but you were directly persecuting Jesus. Amen. In that case, so associated is every believer in corporate solidarity to Christ that if you mistreat the believer, you're mistreating Christ himself. That ties into that passage that we looked at last week, the Colossians 1.24, where Paul says he does his share in filling up the afflictions of Christ what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. The idea is that as every believer suffers, we are partaking in the corporate afflictions of Christ. And I mentioned that there's a full allotment of that. When the end of it comes, Christ comes. We don't know the last day of the last ounce of suffering that God will tolerate of his people, but God has that ordained. And so, yes, that's exactly right. So associated is the believer with Christ If you mistreat the believer, you're mistreating Christ. Here, Christ is specific with his apostles. If you receive their message, you're receiving Christ himself. By the way, this is the death knell, this passage, to the red-letter Christians. Remember uh, years ago, there was a man named Tony Campolo. I don't know if he's still alive. He perhaps is. But he had started an organization called Red Letter Christians. He really has Marxist leanings, this man. And red-letter Christians... By the way, I don't say red letter because it's Marxist, because everyone knows in your Bible where you have the red letters of Christ. The point behind the red letter Christians is that they believe that that's the only thing that's authoritative. So, for example, the Apostle Paul, we won't listen to him. Why? Because it's not the words of Jesus. Okay, but Jesus says himself, part of the red letters is Jesus saying if you reject the message of the apostles, you're rejecting me. If you receive the message of the apostles, you're receiving me. So it is the death knell to the red-letter Christian movement because Christ himself would stand against it. So what I want you to see now is I want to get into the fourfold criteria that we see in the Bible for an apostle. Today in the New Apostolic Reformation movement, 
you have false apostles claiming to be apostles, and yet they can't possibly be apostles because they do not meet the criteria of an apostle. And we're going to look at that here today. Let's begin with number one. If you look on your slide, you'll see the first one is that the apostles of Christ were called personally and objectively. And what I mean by that is it wasn't the apostles sitting around at dinner time eating their steak and baked potato thinking, you know, I, this whole fishing business is kind of a dead end. I think I'm going to become an apostle next week. No, it wasn't something that they had an unction for. It wasn't a thought or a feeling. But Jesus Christ bodily, directly intervened in their lives and personally, audibly called them, whether he was in his earthly body or in his resurrected body. It wasn't an unction. It wasn't a feeling. It was an objective calling. So that's the first thing that I want us to see here. So with that, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 1.1. Well, actually, you know what? I'll cite Romans 1.1. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 4.18 through 22. I'll have you turn there. It's a larger passage. And as you're turning to that, I'll cite you the, sh the shorter one. So turn to Matthew 4.18 through 22. Most of you know in a lot of the epistles... Paul will open up with his calling to be an apostle. So that's what I was going to cite to you. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So notice Paul's claim is that he was called by Christ to be an apostle, one who would proclaim the gospel. Now, you might say, okay, Paul claims it and other people claim it. So if Paul can claim it, why can't other people? Well, because on, in Acts chapter 9, the resurrected Christ directly, personally, objectively intervened in Paul's life. I have never seen the resurrected Christ. Paul did. And it was on the road to Damascus that Jesus Christ himself said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then, of course, he sets him up for this future ministry that he has ordained him for. So, yes, Paul was objectively called. But let's look at the original 12. We'll look at four of them. Notice Matthew 4, 18 through 22. It says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Notice verse 19. It says, And he said to them, Follow me. Now stop there. That's an imperative. It's a command. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. In verse 19 of Matthew 4, these men who were called, both Peter and Andrew, to be apostles weren't simply sitting in their boat and they said, you know, I've got this feeling or this desire that I would really like to be an apostle. No, Jesus Christ in the flesh objectively intervened in their lives and he called them yes paul the apostle was called later but it was still objective same christ in his resurrected body that's what we want to see the connection now keep reading on you'll see the calling of the sons of thunder here the zebedee brothers notice verse 21 through 22 it says going on from there he saw two other brothers james the son of zebedee and john his brother in the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Notice again in verse 21, he called them. Who did? Jesus. And he was there on the scene, direct, personal, objective calling. So when the apostle Paul says that he was called an apostle, he's not saying that one day he really felt the desire to become an apostle. You know, I can say to you that I felt a desire to become a pastor one day, but I can't tell you I was personally, objectively, and directly called like an apostle. Okay? Now, remember, in fact, we see in 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul himself says it is a godly desire to desire to be an elder. He affirms that, but it is a desire. The apostleship wasn't a desire. It was a direct, objective, personal calling. Anyone today who claims to be an apostle 
the only way they can claim that is if the resurrected Christ bodily appeared to them to call them. And that cannot happen. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, the Apostle Paul said, last of all, he appeared to me. So if he appeared last of all to, to Paul, then the next time any of us see him is going to be when? It's going to be at the rapture. Okay, and at the rapture, we won't need apostles. <laughs> we'll have Christ on the scene. Yes, Brian. Just a question about this calling. Yes. So let's say your example here in Matthew 4, what if they didn't know Jesus was Jesus at that time? So they're called. So was it a supernatural? Could they have said, no, I'm not going to accept the call? You know, we don't know. So that would be a supernatural calling. Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, Brian, we don't have any data as to whether they could reject it or not. I suppose they could, um, but it says what's so... Well, what's significant is it says they immediately they left them. And one of the significances of that, yeah, is remember, they're leaving everything that they have. They're leaving their businesses. They're leaving uh, their, their lifestyle. They're leaving their families. Uh, can you imagine one day at work some... Uh, I, I'm not trying to say joker in the sense of Christ. Christ is no joker. He's the Messiah. But today, it'd be some joker. Some joker comes up to you and says, hey, follow me. Well, you're going to leave your business, your family, your livelihood, and start following this guy? Well, that's exactly what it was like, except this was the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the only way that we know they come to faith is certainly by the Spirit. So think about later when we get to Matthew 16, we'll see for the first time the confession at Caesarea Philippi where he says, who do you say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, a prophet. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, on behalf of the 12, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, this was not revealed to you by flesh, but by my Father in heaven. Right? So that's the first confession at Caesarea Philippi. But here... I think you see the beginning of this divine appointment, and certainly it's God in the flesh, the God-man calling them. And so I think between, you know, again, we're reading between the lines, but you can see God's hand in this. Absolutely. Yep. So I'm sorry. Yeah, Rich. Well, I just find it interesting. It's easy to gloss over what you're just talking about. You read the passage, oh, yeah, they followed Jesus. Well, I think of Peter. He was a very rambunctious, blue-collar worker. And um, nobody's going to tell him what to do. Right. I mean, if I said, hey, you need to, hey, Peter, you need to do this, he'd be like, who are you? Right. And, uh, and here comes Christ. And Christ didn't have any money. And this is the interesting thing. If he had a lot of money and you're like, wow, this guy's got money, I'll be able to receive the reward because of the sure. money he's got or the influence. He had. he had no money, poor carpenter, and yet they still obeyed him. And then I think of that verse when Jesus said to, the, to them, did you think you chose me? No, you didn't, pal. I chose you. And one of you is a devil. Yes. He even chose the devil, Amen. you know, amongst them. And I, I just find that well the supernatural said, power of Christ in doing this is something we easily gloss over. But it's yes. just a radical concept, what you're talking about. You know, you bring up a good point, Rich. Um, that would be a good passage that shows us the supernatural calling of the apostles where he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, John 15, 16, I believe. And that is important because it shows that the calling was something from God. It was initiated by him. Again, it's not humans looking for something in their life, looking for a new religion, um, looking for something more, a deeper spirituality. It's being personally, objectively called by the Messiah. Uh, Yes, Luann in the back. Yeah, all of this and what Rich said just makes me think of um, Abraham. You know, I used to think of the exact same thing with Abraham because just like you said, he was told, leave your shop, leave everything you know, and go to this place that you never know and, you know, you've never been before. I mean, that was supernatural too. Luann, well said. In fact, I was going to bring up Abraham earlier, and I I did jettison the material just for the sake of time, but you're absolutely right. Bob and I have talked about this numerous times in some of our podcasts One thing that intrigued us is, remember in Genesis 15, 
Abraham is brought outside by Yahweh. And when you read the account, he ends up cutting a covenant with Yahweh. And Yahweh shows him the stars. And what you get the idea is that this is God in the presence of Abraham in a very objective sense. We, oftentimes, theologians will call it a theophany. However, we might even say you might have had there the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity, on the scene. Remember, Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. He says, he rejoiced to see in my day. He sought from afar and was glad. That's uh, John eight fifty six. So, yeah, I'm sorry. You mentioned that. You mentioned that the, the apostles were chosen to preach the gospel. At yes. first, they were all unbelievers. I mean, until after the resurrection, pretty much. It, or wasn't it that way? Anyway, Judas, obviously, was called then too, but not to give the... I don't know. There's a difference in Judas. Yes, absolutely. He's he was ordained. a Judean. The rest were... Galileans. I don't know. Yeah, he's the son of perdition, so he doesn't belong to the twelve. And I would say that the twelve have faith, but yet they're confused. So there's a confusion until after the resurrection. There's confusion even until after Pentecost. And so you're absolutely right. There is a progressive revelation and understanding of who Christ is, and yet there is a faith, so much so that what's so much shocking in Mark 9... Just jot down Mark 9. If you read that passage, here the apostles had gone out. They did miraculous things, casting out demons. But there was a demon that they couldn't handle. And remember, Jesus shows them that because they're trusting in themselves rather than him, that's why they're failing. And so what's interesting is he says, what shall I liken this unbelieving generation to? The point of that, that phrase, unbelieving generation is it's a corporate solidarity of all unbelievers from the beginning of Genesis to the end of time. And so what he's saying to his disciples is you're acting like them. You're relying upon your power, which is works, rather than mine, which is grace. And you've just, you know, backslidden, as it were, in your attitudes and your thoughts. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't believers. That doesn't mean they didn't belong to him. It's like when the Apostle Paul says of the Corinthians that they're carnal. It doesn't mean, it, Bob has pointed this out, he's using it in an ironic sense. Here you really are spiritual, but you're acting like you're still carnal. That's the irony, and that's the same irony that the Messiah puts on them in Mark chapter 9. Um, it's, do you ever had a good coach, a really good coach, who shows you how you're backsliding in your training? I remember one, uh, I had a, a teacher, a fifth grade teacher. I was supposed to be in this elite reading group. Well, all we did is talk and screw around and throw a football. We were kind of using it because we were away from the rest of the class. Just to have, and I was a fifth grader, so unregenerate fifth grader at that. <laughs> well, this Mr. Peterson, I love the man. He taught me grammar. He did a really good job in fifth grade. But I remember he saw our slackful ways, and he came in, he threw all of our books on the ground. And he says, you're all going back to first grade material and you know, just read us the riot act to say, if I give you liberty because I've seen some potential in some of you, and you're going to abuse it in this way? You're, he says you've backslidden, you're acting no different than the first graders. And Anyway, I just never forget, I was so taken back, and I was cut to the heart even as a fifth grader. That's what Jesus is doing to his disciples in Mark 9. How is it that you act that way? How is it that you've seen all that I am, and you can trust in me, you can come in prayer, and yet you're relying on your own power, and you're acting no different than the unbelieving world. So, yeah, I hope that helps answer the question. Yep. Um, so Judas was destined from the beginning to be the unregenerate. Uh, he was never belonged to Christ. He was never regenerated by the Spirit and brought to faith. When you see the rebuke of the apostles and the disciples, think about Peter. He denies Christ three times. Three times Jesus restores him. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Why? Because Peter always belonged. Peter failed, but he still belonged. Judas failed. Judas never belonged. That's the difference. And again, the only reason anyone comes to faith, whether it's an apostle or the lowliest of saints, is by the Spirit. Judas never belongs. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Very good. 
Okay, well, for the sake of time, let's move on to the second criteria, and that is you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 9.1, and I want to lay out... Um, she wanted to say something. Oh, I'm sorry, Carly. Oh, Levon. I'm just thinking this kind of applies to the elect also, doesn't it? I mean, who God chose, they will come to faith. So in the end, God is sovereign. Amen. He chooses. But I have a question about um, Matthias. Yeah. After the death of um, Judas, then the apostles got together and decided they had to replace him. They yes. had to be 12. So they chose Matthias. But then along comes Paul and yes. his children. So the, the thing about Matthias is he a, a, he's apparently not really an apostle because he wasn't chosen directly by Christ. You know, we don't know. Um, we we don't know one way or the other. What we'll do is we'll actually look at that passage in Acts 1. In Acts 1, uh, Peter says it was necessary... And he talks about the criterion. We'll look at that. Is it a divine necessity or is Peter in, in error? Uh, he, is he making a mistake thinking, well, we have to replace him? We'll talk about that. The one thing we do know is we know the Apostle Paul is an apostle. And um, I don't know if we have to guess as to whether Matthias is or not. It's, he's never denigrated. He's never called a false apostle. So we are just simply going where the data isn't. You know, we have to... Uh, I think we would be guessing as to whether he is or he isn't. So what, what we'll do is, though, I want to show from that passage that according to the Apostle Peter, it was necessary, I think he's saying of divine necessity, that if you're going to be an apostle, you had to be with Christ from the time that he was baptized until the time that he was taken up, which is his three-year ministry. So the question that raises regarding Paul is if Peter is correct that that is a divine necessity, how is Paul brought up to that standard? To me, that's the more intriguing question. Whether Matthias is a real apostle or not, I don't think we can know. Um, I, w- I would assume because he's never, there's never anything in the scriptures that say he wasn't. Um, you know, so remember, at times, when we talk about the 12, the 12 is always minus 1, it was 11. So the number, in some sense, is fluid, but they're referred to as the 12. We know the Apostle Paul is obviously an apostle. So I, other than that, I can't say whether Matthias was genuine or not. Um, but we'll, we'll come to that. What I want to do, though, is start in 1 Corinthians 9.1 and look at the criteria of being a witness of the resurrection. Notice the Apostle Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Now, remember, those are rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is, yes, of course I am. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Of course he has. Are you not my work in the Lord? So notice the Apostle Paul puts the eyewitness of the resurrection as evidence of his apostleship. Does everyone see that? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Right after, am I not an apostle? Right now, turn your Bibles ahead in 1 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read verses 4 through 10. And I want to show you how Christ had revealed himself bodily in his resurrection to all of the apostles. And then we're going to see that Paul was the last of all. So start in 1 Corinthians 15, 4. Now remember here, Paul is giving the core issues surrounding the gospel. He says that Christ was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. By the way, that was the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 5, it says that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. So notice the phrase, the twelve, right? Well, why does he say the twelve when, in fact, Judas wasn't on the scene? He had gone to perdition. Well, because they're always the twelve. Whether he's 11 or he may be 13, it's the twelve. That's how they're referred to. So verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7 says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, does verse 8, verse 8 in Greek, eschaton ponton, last of all, which means last in a series, yes. as to one untimely born, 
he appeared to me also. Does everyone see the significance of him saying, everyone's heard of eschatology, the last things? Paul uses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, eschaton, pantone. Pantone is pas, it means all. Eschaton means last, the last of all. He's the last of all. All of what? All of the apostles. He, or I should say the last of all that Christ appeared to. Therefore, you can have no more apostles because in order to be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Christ. Now, get the logic here. Just because you saw the resurrected Christ does not mean you're an apostle, but all apostles saw the resurrected Christ. So there was over 500 brethren that saw the resurrected Christ. Were they personally called? No. Were they personally instructed? Did they do miraculous deeds? These are the other criteria for an apostle? No. But yet they were eyewitnesses. So my point is, all apostles have seen are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. But just because you're an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ didn't necessarily mean you were an apostle. Yes, Norm. Yeah, in uh, this kind of a follow-up on Levon, uh, in Revelation 21:14, was talking about this New Jerusalem, and it says, yes. "And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the." Twelve names of the twelve apostles and yes. the Lamb. So, what twelve are on there? I mean, right. <laughs> I guess that's a mystery. Sorry. It is. We will find out. Yes. <laughs> right. Absolutely, Norm. Yep. And it's interesting that name, the twelve, is associated with the apostles. And so, whether there was eleven at the time or there ends up being thirteen, it's, they're still called the twelve. And again, there is this idea of a replacement, not in the sense that Israel is being replaced by the church, but you do have a new witness of the workings of God, which sadly should have been the 12 tribes, but they fail. Now Christ, the Messiah, has his 12. So he has his apostles who are the light, as Israel was called to in Isaiah 42. They are now the light to the Gentiles and the rest of the world as to who Christ is, who God is, who Yahweh is. So, yeah, that's keeping in the 12. And, yeah, we'll find out in Revelation. If, if Matthias's name is on there or if he shares a brick with, uh, with Paul or however that works, right? We'll find out. But my I want... Oh, yeah, my money's on Paul as well. Yeah, that's right. That's good money. Okay, so let's turn our Bible or our, uh, to the next point here is miraculous deeds. The apostles did miraculous deeds. Notice the passage I have listed there, Hebrews 2.4. Now, the miraculous deeds the apostles did, they were not done in order to prove the existence of God or that God was moving, but rather that they were his authoritative spokesmen. So read Hebrews 2.4 with me here. hope you turn your Bibles there. Here, it says in Hebrews 2.4 that God also was testifying with them, that is with the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So notice the signs and wonders, these miraculous deeds were being done by the apostles as confirmation that their testimony was valid that these were Christ's authoritative spokesmen. Now, what I want you to do is I want to look at some of the miraculous things that they did do. And I want you to turn your Bibles for the sake of time. Let's look at Acts 14, 8 through 11. Acts 14, 8 through 11. Turn your Bibles there and we'll look at some of the miraculous things that they did. One thing I want to point out is in many of the miracles and healings in the book of Acts... You see this term all used. For example, um, as you're turning again to Acts 14, 8 through 11, in Acts 5, it says, Peter came by and at least his shadow might fall on any one of them and they would be healed. And at the very end, it says, and they were all being healed. The term hapas means a whole group, the whole group of them. So when Peter healed, he was batting a thousand. Are you with me? What's a very good major league uh, hitting percentage, like a 333 hitter. That would be an, so they strike out or go down at the plate the vast majority of the time. They, they hit and they are thrown out at first or what have you. 
So a great hitting percentage would be like 300. Well, the apostles were batting 1,000. So when they did miracles, they were all being healed. It wasn't, well, I, you know, I prayed for them, but God had other plans. They were all being healed. Why? Because they were better people than you and I, the apostles? No. It's because God was authenticating that these were his authoritative spokesmen. Notice what it says in Acts 14, 8 through 11. It says, At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. So stop there. He never walked. It wasn't that he lost his ability, so we needed restoration. No, he needed creation. This is going to be a creative act by God to heal him. He's never had the ability. This man was listening to Paul, it says in verse 9, as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen him that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, so this is Paul, says, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Now, does everyone see the term he leaped up? That term there is halomai. Halomai is the Greek term for leaping, and it's a direct allusion back to Isaiah 35, 6. What does it promise in Isaiah 35, 6? That when the Messiah comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the lame will leap like a deer. This is exactly the type of miracles that Christ the Messiah himself was doing in his earthly ministry. He healed the sight of the blind. Remember the man who was born blind? It wasn't that he lost his vision and he needed a little restoration. He needed a creative act of God. This man was born lame. Jesus healed the lame, the deaf, and the blind. And this is exactly what the apostles are doing. Why? Because they are Christ's authoritative spokesmen. They do what he does. So that's why they're doing these miraculous things. That's why Hebrews 2.4 says that God was testifying through them by signs and wonders. Okay, one more to think about, Acts 19.11. You don't have to turn there, but in 19.11 through 12, remember, it says God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Why? Because he's an apostle. So that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Today, if some TV evangelist says, if you buy my handkerchief for $59.95, and by the way, we have a special on miracles today, I'll give you it at $39.95, don't do it, because they're not an apostle. And wait, there's more. Yeah, and wait, there's more. Yeah, you also get the free set of steak knives, right? (laughs) Right, so don't fall for it, because they're not... They're not apostles. That's what God was authenticating. Now, let's come to the fourth criteria of an apostle, and that is they were personally instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ for three years. Now, how do I come up with that criteria? Well, it comes back to something Levon was bringing up. Turn your Bibles to Acts 1, 21 through 22. Acts 1, 21 through 22. Now, remember, this is technically prior to Pentecost, but here... The apostles are wrestling with what to do with Judas's absence since he, the son of perdition, was no longer on the scene. They were going to replace him. And notice Peter's criteria that he comes up for, or excuse me, comes up with for an apostle. Acts 121 through 22, it says, Peter said, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Notice he says, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The very beginning in verse 21, the term necessary, does everyone see that? That is day in the Greek. If you're to transliterate that to English, it's D-E-I. That probably is the divine necessity here. Either Peter is mistaken Okay, and it's just something he's coming up with, or he's speaking authoritatively, and this really is something that God demands. And I, because he's an apostle, I would take it as the latter. That's how I would understand it. So what was necessary for someone to be an apostle? Well, they had to be with them, that is with Christ, from the beginning of the baptism until Christ was taken up. Now, Christ's earthly ministry was how long? That was a three-year period. And the question is, well, how could the Apostle Paul be 
an apostle if he didn't meet that criteria. Well, what's interesting is he ends up being brought up to the same criteria, but later on. And I want to show you evidence of that. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 1.11. Galatians 1.11. We'll actually read all the way down to verse 18. Now, I'm going to show you that I think the issue is that one of the criteria of the apostles, and the reason it was so significant that they were with Christ during his whole earthly ministry, is that they were personally instructed by Christ. That's who the apostles were. They were with Christ. As John said, we felt him, we talked with him, we beheld him. They, they knew who he was. They received his revelation. Well, Paul's brought up to that same standard, Galatians 1:11 through 18. Paul says, in, this is Galatians 1:11. he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop there. Could the Apostle Paul at the, ta- at the time was Saul on the road to Damascus have received all the instruction that he needed regarding the true gospel? No. So the revelation that he's referring to had to occur later. Now, what's interesting is he'll come to that. Notice verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Verse 15, it says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me, there's the objective personal calling, through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Stop there. Paul is saying he didn't, he didn't consult with the teachings and doctrines from men. But rather what? Verse 17, he says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Now here's the key verse, verse 18. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. I think the implication here is that Paul in Arabian Damascus was also taught the doctrines of Christ for three years. So the original apostles were being instructed by Christ from the time of the baptism until the time he was taken up for three years. Here the apostle Paul was brought up to the same standard. The first apostles saw the resurrected Christ. Paul saw him as one who was untimely born, the resurrected Christ, but brought up to the same standard. So here's the point. In those four criteria that you see on your slide or on your sheet, first one, objectively, personally, personally called. It wasn't subjective. It wasn't an unction. It was personal. It was objective, the calling. Number two, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. Number three, you did miraculous deeds authenticating that you were an apostle of Christ. And number four, you were personally instructed by Christ for three years. Can anyone meet those criteria today? No. No. So if anyone in the new apostolic reformation movement claims to be an apostle, they, as the saying goes, are a $3 bill. It is not genuine. Yes, Luann. Okay, so now we have defined who apostles are. I'm wondering if you can give me a definition then, like for today, um, the definition of like being able to prophesy, and then who can do that, and, you know, and looping in this priesthood of every believer. Yes, um, so who can prophesy, and what do we mean by prophesying? In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says you may all prophesy. And the all can't specifically be only prophets, because he says so that all may be edified. So if we're going to say all may prophesy and the all are only the prophets, well, then only all of the prophets can be edified. Would that make sense? No. So the all has to be every believer. And prophecy is giving what we would say is implications and applications of Scripture. It's prophesying in a functional sense, but not in the sense of writing Scripture. Does that make sense? So... One of the passages that I think clearly teaches this, that we no longer have apostles and prophets, as I just laid out the criteria. Because remember, apostles and prophets go hand in hand. 
How do we know that? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 shows you the foundation of the apostles and prophets go hand in hand. Ephesians 2.20, I realize we're breaking right into the midst of a verse here. You know, there's context, but for the sake of time, notice it says, having been built. That is, the church is having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So notice the foundation that is laid in the building in this metaphor that Paul is using is that of the apostles and prophets. So think of any building, they have one foundation. You don't have multiple foundations, you have one. And the foundation that was laid consisted of the apostles and prophets, and then Christ is depicted here as what? The cornerstone. The cornerstone is that key piece that holds the foundation together. So Christ, his apostles and prophets have been laid once and for all. And so, I'm sorry, I'll come right to you, Paul. That's why we see in Jude 3... Remember, Jude says that you would contend for the faith once and for all, hapax, meaning once and never again, handed down to the saints. Well, if you have modern-day apostles and prophets, then you don't have a once and for all handed down to the saints' faith. In fact, that's why the Mormons, they have the, the Book of Mormon, right? Well, who's going to refute them without understanding that you can't have modern-day apostles. If you say, well, I don't believe that, they'll say, well, our apostles are claiming that the Book of Mormon is true. Right now, in Catholicism, the Pope is claiming to be an apostle. And so if you ask them, well, how do you know that your tradition is true? Well, because they have a modern apostle in the lineage of Peter. But when we show that, no, the apostles and prophets were laid and the rest of the church is being built upon that, and therefore we have once and for all handed down to the saints kind of faith, then we don't need and we can't have modern apostles. Yes, Paul. Yes, I don't dispute anything that you say or the scriptures has you laid out for us, but if you turn to Matthew 28, yes. uh, verse 18, the Great Commission, uh, it says, All authority has been given to me, uh, in heaven and earth, go and therefore and make disciples. All I would like is a clarification thereof yeah. that, about that, and that uh, I don't want the rights and dis I'm not trying to say, well, I don't dispute anything that you say. There are yep. no modern apostles. Got it. But if we go out and make disciples or the Holy Spirit using us to make disciples, are we not uh, apostole, that is, uh, people who go out? Exactly. We are sent out in that sense. We are sent, but in a derived sense. Yeah. So... I'm not writing scripture. You're never going to have a gospel from Eric Dalma. Hopefully I don't become a heretic, right, by God's grace. You're not going to have one from me. So I stand under apostolic authority and I make disciples of all nations. Um, or, you know, and all of you do. All of you are under apostolic authority. Okay? So one of the ways to prove this further, I know we only got 10 minutes left, but what I, what I want to do is turn to the next slide that you have. This is the last one. And I'm going to show you that isn't it interesting? The Apostle Paul in the pastoral epistles calls for, for example, Titus and Titus 1.5 to appoint elders in every church. Why doesn't he say, make sure you appoint apostles in every church? Why don't you make sure, Titus, when you're in Crete, that you appoint prophets in every church? The apostles and prophets were primary. They were the most important. They're the foundation of the entire church. Why doesn't Paul say... Make sure you appoint apostles and prophets in every church. Turn your Bibles to Titus 1.5. What's the instructions from the Apostle Paul? Well, it's not to appoint apostles and prophets. They've already been appointed. You can't have any more. But what are we to do? Well, Paul says in Titus 1.5, again, a pastoral epistle. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to a pastor in Crete. And he says to them, Titus 1.5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. By the way, the term elders there is presbuteros, the term for elders. So there's three terms that are used interchangeably for the elder. Presbuteros, episcopos, and poimen, which is the pastor. Every pastor is an elder, and every elder is a pastor. That's biblical. Let me prove it to you. 
Turn your Bibles to another passage. Let's look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. So what I want to do is get rid of this American evangelical notion that, well, elders are the CEOs, and they're really gifted businessmen, but then you've got this pastor, the hired gun, who can speak a little bit, and he knows the Bible maybe a little bit, and he's the one who's going to give us our homily. No. The biblical definition is that every elder is a pastor and every pastor is an elder. Notice 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. Verse 1, he says, Peter, Therefore I exhort the elders, presbyteros among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Notice verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God among you. The term shepherd there is the verb poimena, poimeno. Poimeno comes from the noun poimene, which is the term for pastor. So what is the elder, the presbyteros, to do? To shepherd the flock of God as a poimene, as a pastor. That's what Peter just said. Now, why do I have that for you? Because notice on your slide, I hope you have the slide in front of you, the last, on your last sheet. Notice Ephesians 4, 10 through 11. These are the gifts that Christ gave as he ascended on high. Remember, he's like the bridegroom was going away and he sends gifts to his bride to comfort her while he's making a place for us in the Father's house. And so look at the gifts that he gives. It says, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Notice the term pastors. That's poimen. But notice according to 1 Peter 5.1, it's the same as the presbyteros. And we know that the presbyteros and the episcopos are the same. So whether it's the episcopos, the presbyteros, or the poimen, pastors, elders, overseers, they're all the same. Amen. They're all the same. So if you want a church, do you know what you must have to have a church? Plural elders. And if you need them, that's why we're given the criteria of an elder. If any man desires to be an elder, he desires a fine thing, 1 Timothy 3.1. Then it describes the criteria of the elder. And then below that in 1 Timothy 3 is the deacon. If your church becomes large enough where you need more help, you have deacons. So you have elders, you must have that. If you don't have elders, you don't have a church. It is the core essential foundation for the leadership of the church. Why didn't Paul say, make sure you appoint apostles and prophets? Because that was once and for all laid down. Ephesians 2.20, the church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So we don't have, oh, I don't have a screen to point to. Look on your slide, apostles and prophets, that's already been laid, that foundation. But we have the rest of them. We have the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So why does the Catholic Church have cardinals? Why? Yeah, right. Why are there bishops? Why are this all? Bob has been pointing this out. Time and time again, this is the hierarchy of Christendom that has nothing to do with what Christ ordained through his apostles. What must you have to have a church? Elders. Paul says appoint elders in every church. He doesn't say appoint apostles, appoint prophets. Why? That's once and for all been laid. We have deacons if you need them. That's why we're given the criteria for them. So, dear ones, if everyone could be an apostle, and we had continuing apostles today, remember in the list, look on the list in Ephesians 4, 11. They have priority over the pastor. Notice the apostles and prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. The apostles and prophets, the reason they're always listed first is typically because they're the priority. That's the foundation that has been laid. So if we were to say, well, in order to have real leadership, we have to have apostles and prophets. After all, they're listed first. They're the foundation. The rest of the church is built upon that. If they were still necessary, if we were still able to have apostles and prophets, why doesn't someone out in the theological world say, why Paul commanded Christians to appoint elders in every church. He says, appoint elders in every city as I directed you and not apostles and prophets. I think that that's devastating. 
against the continuation of apostles and prophets. Brothers and sisters, what this all means then for us today is we can be really grateful that we have an objective faith once and for all, as it says in Jude 3, handed down to the saints. And it makes sense why in Revelation chapter 22, the very last book of the canon, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, can give us the words of Christ saying, don't add to the words of the book. Some will say, some scholars will say, well, that's only for Revelation. Well, it's fitting that it's for the book that's at the end of the canon. That if you add to the book, God will add to you the plagues that are found in the book. Those are bad plagues. Those are bad plagues, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, dear ones, why do we have a once and for all handed of the saints? Why can we not add to the book of, Reve- or to the book of Revelation any more into our canon? Because we don't have apostles and prophets. So I hope that that's a clear enough case for everyone. Now, anybody, we got just two minutes left. Anyone wanted to, I thought I saw, uh, nope, we're good. Did you see that Kalinda guy claiming there are, trying to refute what you're doing? Oh, no, I didn't see that. Didn't I send you that link to that from from Brandon? Oh, yeah, a while ago, right, right, yep. I'm sorry, yeah. People claiming to get around this. Yes. Because they need the five-fold ministry. They need the five-fold ministry, right. they're not, they're not. Yes. Yes. I looked at the top, and it basically doesn't any kind of account in John. Any type of count? I'm sorry, count of what? I'm sorry. You know, my Andrew calls. Andrew calls. uh, Is called because he's been following John, the gospel. I mean the. John the Baptist. But he says, there's the son of, there's the lamb of God. So there's yes. always, a, there's, there's something that, that uh, Peter has already heard about. Yes, I think that that's implied too. And I think perhaps Matthew, Matthew 3, there's the, the message of John the Baptist. Christ is baptized. And so they know something of Christ at this time when they're being personally and objectively called because they probably were there and were aware of the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's whole point was to point towards the Messiah. So if it's kind of like there was always something in the background that's going on. Uh, yes, so John the Baptist is his whole role, according to Malachi 3, Malachi chapter 4, even the book of Isaiah, is to prepare the way straight for the Lord. So his job is to point to the Messiah. Yeah, so again, I think what you're saying is the disciples are, they are exposed to the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Therefore, it's not just that Jesus comes up to them and says, follow me, and they know nothing of him. I think there's a renown and a fame associated with, this, with Jesus of Nazareth because of the ministry of John the Baptist. And so I think that that's perhaps what you're saying, and I think that's exactly right. Yep. Yes, exactly. We, we just can't know, right? Right, exactly. So all we know is they did. We know that Jesus chose them. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And we know, I think, from the data that, yes, there was some fame of Christ because of the work of John the Baptist. But other than that, we can't really get into hypotheticals as to if they had done this or they had done that. I just don't know. So, yeah, I hope that helps. But very good, yep. Hey, Eric, real Let's, quick. Um, Eric, well, oh, I'm real sorry. Quick. I, I was just going to ask you about um, that, that part in Matthew 16 where uh, Peter confesses, uh, let's see, what it's, uh, it's uh, Matthew 16, uh, verse 17. Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And I, I know this is a, a big thing with the Catholic Church, but the, the foundation, uh, so the church is built on the foundation of, of, now what would you say on that? Is it on, the, on this confession of Peter, or is it? You know, the, the, the play on words is a play off of Peter's name. Right. Okay? But, so what we have to do as evangelicals is be honest that Jesus is making a play off of Peter's name. 
But we don't have to go as the Catholics do to say, well, this proves that there's going to be a future apostolic succession where there's always going to be a vicar of Christ who comes from the lineage of Peter. That's well beyond what Christ is saying. So when we go to Ephesians 2.20, that gives us clarification because there the Apostle Paul who speaks authoritatively for Christ is saying that the church was built. Now remember, the church belongs to Christ and had, has been built, it's aorist, has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So notice the plurality of the apostles and prophets. And by the way, who would be a prophet? Luke. Who is he associated with? Paul. Or think about Mark. Or uh, think about Agabus. Now, Agabus didn't write any scripture, but I want you to think about like Mark and Luke. These would be prophets who gave us scriptures. They weren't apostles, but they were under apostolic authority. And so it's the apostolic authority in Ephesians 2.20 that is the basis of the church, not just the one. But Peter is the first, as he often is, the first to speak out, the first to do this. He's the most boisterous. And so that's why Jesus is saying that. So, yes, it's a playoff of Peter's name, Petros, rock. And it may be a double entendre. They're by Caesarea Philippi, which was where Mount Hermon was. There could have been a little bit of a double entendre. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Um, but it's, it's Peter. That's the, the evidence we get from the text. So, yep. Very good. We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time together. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a faith once and for all handed down to the saints, that we don't have to look for subjective unctions from men, but we can trust in objective, authoritative words that come from you, handed down through the apostles and prophets. We thank you for these things. I pray for Bob as he teaches us from 1 Corinthians. Lord, I pray that you'd give us understanding Help us to live lives that are pleasing to you through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.